Well, do take your Bibles, if you haven't already, and turn with me to the book of Acts. We're in Acts 21. If you are, are using the, the blue ESV Bibles in the seatbacks out there, you can find Acts 21 on page 930. Um, the title of our sermon this morning is Tensions Rise. And the key words for our worshipers in training are spirit, law, and purify. For a few weeks now, as we've been working uh, through the book of Acts, we have seen the Apostle Paul being constrained by the Spirit to return to Jerusalem. Um, He has... Uh, if you've not been with us, he's on his third uh, missionary journey, and, um, and it is, he's now been making his way uh, to Jerusalem, uh, but then he has plans to head on to Rome after that, uh, and as we know from what he writes to the Romans in chapter 15, he wants to go from Rome even on to Spain. So he has these missionary endeavors before him. And much like Jesus, at this point, Paul is set for Jerusalem. Um, What awaited Jesus when Jesus had set his face like flint to Jerusalem was an arrest, a kangaroo court, and a crucifixion. Last week, we saw that Paul knew similarly that imprisonment and afflictions awaited for him, not just in Jerusalem, but in every city. Nevertheless, he was resolute to finish the course and the ministry that Jesus had given to him. That is, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Well, today we find Paul facing trials of two different kinds in his pursuit of finishing his course and ministry. The first trial that he faces is tension that continues to grow now over his plans to go back to Jerusalem. The second uh, trial that he faces is tension regarding his reputation among Jewish believers. And so uh, I want to read these verses. Uh, We're going to read chapter 21, the first 26 verses, and then um, give uh, an outline of the, the sermon, and then we'll, we'll get to work. So look with me at Acts 21, beginning in verse 1. And when we had parted from them all, that is the Ephesian elders that he had met uh, with in Miletus to tell them goodbye, they parted with them, they set sail, and they came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to um, Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemas, 
and we were greeted the and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said. Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When he heard this, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, And all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous. They are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Well, based on the way I described the passage to begin with, you can probably guess that our outline has just two parts this morning. We're going to take up these verses uh, according to two headings. Uh, The first, and they will each correspond to these two trials that Paul faces. First, in verses 1 through 14, we're going to see tensions rise over Paul's plans to return to Jerusalem. And then second, in verses 15 through 26, we'll see tension over Paul's reputation. So look with me in the first place then, the first 14 verses where we see tensions rise over Paul's plans to go to Jerusalem. Luke Luke opens this section uh, with a a fairly simple record in the first few verses here um, of their trip from Miletus to Tyre and from Tyre to Caesarea. And at each of these major stops that they make, he records Um, encounters that Paul has with disciples, with friends who were urging him not to go to Jerusalem. 
And in both cases, at Tyre and in Caesarea, and we'll come back to this, we're told that they were urging him not to go through some work of the Holy Spirit. Um, In verses 4 to 6, they were telling him not to go, the disciples at Tyre, and then in 7 through 15, the prophet Agabus confronts him with the warning, and the disciples there, along with his traveling companions, urge him not to go. So I want to look at each of those uh, in turn, and we're going to look at the, the stop in Tyre very briefly, and then we'll, we'll spend a little bit more time uh, with Caesarea and Agabus and everything going on there. First, um, Tyre. Paul and company were told they, they stayed at Tyre there for a week, uh, possibly so that their ship could be ready to set sail again. It was unloading, unloading cargo, and so there was some sort of transition happening there, and so they're waiting. We, we know from the uh, end of Uh, or really the middle of chapter 20, that Paul was eager to get to Jerusalem. And so he's not wanting to spend more time in any one place than he has to. Um, And so they're waiting there entire, and and while they're there, they they have these conversations. And Luke doesn't give us any details of their interactions, other than to say that the people there were warning Paul not to go to Jerusalem, and they were doing so through the Spirit. And yet this... Uh, came to, to nothing. Paul continued on his way. Uh, he did, however, stop on the beach, pray, and say farewell to them. But then afterward, they, they set sail once more. And so they leave Tyre. They stop in uh, Ptolemas for uh, a day, um, and then they come to Caesarea in Syria. And so they're, they're very near to Jerusalem now, but not quite there yet. And, and here again, we see the, the tensions continuing to rise. He was weeping with the Ephesian elders we saw last week over his plans for Jerusalem. He's being warned and, and begged by the disciples entire not to go. And now he's, uh, he's confronted by the, the prophet Agabus in Caesarea. And this happens at a man named Philip's house. Philip the evangelist, you'll recall, we met way, way, way back in Acts chapter 6. He was one of the seven men appointed to this proto-diaconal uh, work to care for the, the, the widows uh, uh, in the house um, of Israel who were not being cared well for because of the vast numbers of people who were coming to believe in Jesus. So he was one of those seven who also went on to minister in Samaria, and the Lord used him to bring about the inclusion of the Samaritans into the kingdom of God. And so he's setting him apart from Philip the apostle here. Uh, And so it's this Philip that we met in Acts 6 through 8, and we're told that he has four daughters who prophesied and were unmarried. It was very tempting to me to move right past this verse because he doesn't really say much about them. He just names them. He doesn't give them names. He says they existed, they prophesied, let's move on. Um, But I think it's it's worth pausing for a moment here just to consider something about why Luke might have included this statement in verse 9 in this account. Uh, if If you think back to what he said at the very beginning of the book, uh, really, even the very beginning of Luke, uh, he was attempting to give an accurate and orderly account of the things that took place during this time through the ministry of Jesus on earth and then through the ministry of Jesus from heaven. Um, but beyond that, I think we can gain a better understanding of why this sentence is included, other than mere record keeping, 
is if we remember to read the book of Acts um, very intentionally through the lens of Acts 1.8, where Jesus tells his apostles that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and that would happen when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And so Acts 1.8 with chapter 2 at Pentecost, when the giving of the Spirit occurs, is the lens through which we need to read the entirety of the book of Acts. And I think it gives us help here understanding why Luke includes this verse. Remember, Jesus promised his kingdom would spread through the witness of the apostles after they received the Spirit whom Jesus gave to his church on Pentecost as the newly crowned king of the cosmos. Peter then, on the day of Pentecost, after the giving of the Spirit, he explains the situation because people were wondering what on earth is going on here. And so Peter explains and he quotes from the, from the prophet Joel, who had said that the coming of the Spirit would result in a return of the prophetic gift and that both men and women, sons and daughters of Israel, would prophesy. The prophets and the apostles served as the foundation of the New Testament church, according to Paul in the book of Ephesians. The New Testament prophets, therefore, both men and women, according to Joel and Peter, were vitally involved in the formative, revelatory period of the early church. Now, this does not overthrow Paul's teaching in other places that the office of pastor is to be filled by men exclusively, but what this does, the, the men and women prophesying, the inclusion of these daughters of Philip here, what it does is it displays the generous outpouring of God's Spirit wherein these four daughters have received, they have received the same inheritance as others that we've seen throughout this book, the Holy Spirit, and that God was working in the, the midst of His people in forming His New Testament church during these days before the closing of the canon with the writing of the book of Revelation. So those are some thoughts about it. I hope that's helpful. But Luke doesn't linger in verse 9, and neither shall we. We need to move on to discuss Agabus and the prophecy that he gives. Now this is likely the same Agabus that we met in Acts 11, where he had warned about a coming famine, which Luke notes had come true. Agabus here warns Paul about the dangers that he would face in Jerusalem. And and he does so, like a lot of the Old Testament prophets did, in a rather dramatic fashion. He takes Paul's belt, ties himself up, and says, This is what's waiting for you, brother, if you head on to Jerusalem. Now, there's an issue that arises here regarding Agabus' prophecy that is worth noting. You may or may not be aware of this, but uh, there, there, there are arguments that, that Agabus' prophecy is, while true in the gist of it, people want, there are some that will argue that it was false as to the specific details. And we will see Paul's arrest, um, Lord willing, next week. Um, I'll make reference to it here, though, but we'll look at it in more detail next week. But um, the idea is that they're, they're needing to separate New Testament prophecy from Old Testament prophecy so that if you have New Testament prophets who have a, uh, a non-authoritative, sort of fallible prophecy that's offered, then you can have that continuing on throughout the church age without necessarily needing to add to a closed canon of Scripture. Um, 
But the reality is that Agabus' prophecy does, in fact, come true. It isn't a false prophecy in any meaningful sense at all. Paul is seized by the Jews in Acts 21.30. He's dragged out of the city, very likely having even been bound already at that point in some fashion. And he's left in the hands of the Romans, Gentiles, verse 33. And that's what Agabus prophesied. He would be bound and left to the Romans. Jews to the Romans, and he's bound in the process. Paul, even later on in Acts, at his trial, he, he says that he was handed over as a prisoner to the Romans, basically quoting Agabus almost verbatim. And additionally, one other thing about Agabus, Luke himself goes out of his way to establish the credibility of this man. He links both his prophecies in Acts 11 and in Acts 21 with the activity of the Holy Spirit. And while he directly asserts in Acts 11 that Agabus' prophecy about the famine came true, he states it directly there in that passage, what he does in the rest of Acts 21 is he, he shows the same thing, that his prophecy of Paul's arrest also comes true. So there's really no good reason to say that Agabus prophesied in a false way. And so what that means is we, we don't actually have a clear, any clear New Testament example of fallible prophecy. And so it's a strange thing to see attempts to continue to throw Agabus under the bus. And so what we would argue here is that um, the prophetic gift was in, uh, it functioned during this time for the the, uh, the revelation of the New Testament, the, the writing down of sacred scripture uh, from the revelation of Jesus, that he is spoken by the prophets in former days, but now through his son, according to the author of Hebrews. And so when the canon is closed, these things are no longer necessary. And of course, this isn't the point that Luke is trying to make, but if you were to go and read something about Agabus, you would surely find comments about this controversy over it, and so that's why I mention it here, so that you've heard something of it before. Um, If you read about it and you're like, why did Sam just totally skip that whole part? So not skipping anything as best we can. Um, But what's the effect? What happens when he makes this prophecy? He warns Paul about this impending danger, And the disciples there, including Luke and the other traveling companions of Paul, they begin pleading with Paul, hey man, don't go to Jerusalem. But Paul is resolute. He says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready to be imprisoned. I'm ready to die for the name of Jesus. And so failing to persuade him, they all in one accord cease and commit themselves and Paul to the will of God. However, there's another question that I think we need to ask at this point. Why does it seem like the Holy Spirit is contradicting himself in this passage? Do you notice that? Do you feel that tension at all? If you're reading these sections here, beginning in, uh, what was it, 1921, Paul resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And he tells them again that the Spirit in uh, 20 verse 22, I'm being constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. 
And then you have the disciples at Tyre. You have Agabus in Caesarea saying, hey, through the Spirit, this is what's waiting. Imprisonment and affliction, so don't go. So which is it? Is the Spirit telling Paul to go to Jerusalem, or is the Spirit not telling Paul to go to Jerusalem? Well, he's telling him to go. The issue is not that the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is contradicting himself, for that would be impossible. The reality is that the the data, if you will, is being accurately provided to all parties. But the conclusions drawn from the data by observers, at least, are the conclusions are different based on people's perspectives. The message that the Spirit delivers to all parties is, in a nutshell, affliction and imprisonment awaited for Paul in Jerusalem. That's, he says as much back in chapter 20. So Paul's friends hear that, and they take the message, they conclude, out of love for Paul, Paul, you should avoid Jerusalem. Paul receives the message and concludes, out of love for Jesus Christ, I must go on to Jerusalem. And this is instructive for each group. Ultimately, each group must resign itself to the will of God. Paul, despite his broken heart over the pain of his friends at Ephesus, at Tyre, and now at Caesarea, Paul must remain resolute. He must return to Jerusalem that he might finish his course and his ministry that God had given to him. He needed to get to Jerusalem to deliver this offering that he had been collecting from the saints through his travels to bring to the, remember, the poverty-stricken saints in Judea. He needed to get to Jerusalem and beyond. And he needed to trust the Lord that his work was not being done in vain. And Paul's friends, despite their fear over Paul's well-being and his life, they must commit their beloved friend to the will of God, believing that God will do what is right. The Holy Spirit, then, it seems, is teaching Paul. He's teaching the friends the same lesson from different points of view. And he's teaching us the same thing. Will we trust Him? Will we follow where God leads even when it is difficult? Even when it leads to excruciating goodbyes? I want to return to this thought at the end. But we need to press on. So for now, we'll leave this point with that question. Are we committed to following the Lord wherever He leads? So that's the first trial that Paul faces, his, this tension over his plans. But look with me in the second place then, um, beginning in verse 15, at his second trial with tensions rising over his reputation. Luke records Paul's arrival and initial meeting in Jerusalem in verses 15 through 19. There Paul greets James and the elders. He he gives reports of all that God had been doing through him among the Gentiles, and they rejoice and glorify God. It was an amicable meeting. It was a joyful time. Uh, and then they, the, the James and the elders there, they share with Paul a report concerning the Jews who had come to believe in Christ. But then an issue comes up. They bring up an issue that had arisen over Paul's reputation among these Jewish Believers living among the Gentiles in the diaspora. They had been led to believe, they had come to believe that Paul was commanding Jewish believers to forsake 
their cultural heritage and for all intents and purposes become Gentiles. Right. In order to understand what's happening here in Acts 21, it will be helpful to think back to Acts 15. If you recall, Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, was convened over confusion that had arisen over whether Gentile believers needed to become, um, needed to adopt cultural Jewish practices in order to be saved, particularly the issue of circumcision. Did Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved? The answer that the apostles give with Peter, Paul, and James as uh, sort of the spokespersons for this answer was that since not even the Jews could have been saved by their own works of righteousness through keeping the law, they should not trouble the Gentiles with requirements to keep uh, all of the, the law of Moses, and in particular, to be circumcised. Now, they did say that the Gentiles would, would need to give up any and all explicitly pagan practices, um, as uh, we're even reminded of here in this passage. Uh, but they could, they wanted to maintain that the Gentiles could, uh, they could keep their particular ethnic identities and cultural heritages that were not in contradiction to the gospel. And so explicit sins or pagan idolatry had to go, but you, could, you didn't have to become a Jew in order to be saved. That's Acts 15. Acts 21 seems to be the reverse of that. It seems by Acts 21 that there had arisen this problem in the minds of many Jewish believers that Paul was expecting them, in essence, to become Gentiles. Right? They had, they had heard that Paul was teaching that Jews were to forsake Moses and the, their customs, that they couldn't circumcise their children or walk in their practices. So if Acts 15 helps us to understand that Gentiles don't have to become Jews, Acts 21 helps us to understand that the Jews didn't have to become Gentiles. I think about what Paul writes in, in Galatians um, 6. He says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Paul's argument never was to the Jews, you cannot circumcise your children, and you cannot remain uh, a Jew, that you cannot maintain your cultural identity. After all, he says earlier in Galatians that there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Now, that doesn't mean that Jews and Gentiles are to become an amorphous, culturally indistinct blob. <clears throat> the issue is that now there's one united brotherhood comprised of Jews and Gentiles, and each may retain their cultural heritages so long as they are not at direct odds with the gospel of Christ. We see the danger that many Jews at this time and even today face was to place their hope in their circumcision, in their lineage, in their cultural heritage. We saw that at the beginning uh, of Acts 19 and the issues with Pentecost and the prophecies of John the Baptist. And so Paul, in his ministry, it's important that we understand, was not attempting to overthrow thousands of years of cultural practices by the Jews. That they had to become someone else. His point 
was this. Do not place your hope of salvation in your cultural heritage. Remain Jewish if you would like. Practice certain things if you would like, but do not place your hope in them. And certainly do not require the Gentiles to do the same. Meaning to practice Old Covenant Judaism. And so James and the elders in Jerusalem knew this. They affirm this, and so they, they consider how they might clear up this problem and this confusion. They suggest to Paul that he oversee the purification process of these four men who had taken a vow. Surely this is the Nazarite vow, which is the same vow that Paul had completed uh, that we saw in Acts 18. If Paul joined these men and thus publicly upheld the legitimacy of this purification practice, then it they would see that Paul was not seeking merely to overthrow the law, but that he himself, in a meaningful way, um, lived in observance of it. Now, we should note, Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 9 that he found himself under no constraint as a Jew to live under the cultural conditions of the law. He wasn't opposed, however, in this case, to a concession in this respect in order to not unduly offend his weaker brothers. And so again, the point here is to communicate that there was zero expectation by Paul or others, at least at this point in history, we'll get to that in a second, that the Jews must discard their observances of the law as markers of their cultural identity in order to be saved. They could continue to remain Jews, but they must not place their confidence in those practices. But it, it brings up uh, another issue here, and that regards the, the redemptive historical timeline in which this occurs. What was still standing at the time of Paul's visit to Jerusalem? The temple. The temple was still standing. It still stood at this point. The old covenant era had not yet fully, completely, and absolutely been vanquished by the coming of the new. There was still a uh, sort of this interchange that was taking place. That was to come a few years from this point in 70 A.D. when Titus sacks Jerusalem and raises the temple. Now while we would still not want to say that Jews must become cultural Gentiles in order to be saved, they need to believe in Messiah in order to be saved, but we do need to reckon with the fact, given the recommendation of James and the elders here, we need to reckon with the fact that the Old Covenant had not yet, in a complete, full sense, been brought to an end. And so, they were eager not to appear as though they were desecrating the temple, which, ironically, is the very thing Paul gets accused of leading to his arrest. And so, this isn't James or Paul backpedaling now affirming a salvific efficacy of circumcision or any other Jewish custom. This was Paul and James affirming that these cultural practices were, um, were uh, not exactly side issues, um, adiaphora, but they were, they were somewhat matters of indifference. But they didn't want to become an immovable stumbling stone to their Jewish brothers in Christ. A crucified Messiah is stumbling stone enough to the Jews. And so Paul agrees 
to observe this Jewish custom and joins with these men um, for the sake of the gospel. And if you remember Acts 16, this isn't the first time we've seen Paul do this. Isn't this exactly why Paul had Timothy circumcised in Acts 16? Timothy was an uncircumcised half-Jewish man because his father was Greek. So he wasn't circumcised. Paul wanted him on his traveling team of missionaries. And so in order not to be an unbelievable offense to the Jews, he has him circumcised. And so it is with this observance of this purification rite. And as I said, it's somewhat ironically, it's this very act that some of the unbelieving Jews will misrepresent in order to stir up the crowds against him and get him arrested, which we'll see next week, Lord willing. So what do we do with all of it? What do we do with these two stories, um, these tensions that are rising for Paul as he's making his way to Jerusalem, and as he actually gets to Jerusalem um, here in, uh, in the second part of our, our text here. I want to close with a, a, just a few words of, of application from this passage as a whole. The first thing comes from the latter part. Seek peace wherever you can. Do you have the same spirit as Paul and James? I read a quote this week about it. I'm going to butcher it now because I didn't write it down. But I think it's worth saying that Paul was a free man, but he didn't allow himself to become enslaved to his freedom. Right? Seek peace. Do you have the same uh, conciliatory spirit that Paul did here? Right? He wasn't going back to the Old Covenant, but he, he understood that there was things in place at the moment that would, that were, would have been difficult for the, the, the Jews there living among the Gentiles to grasp. And so he, he's eager to demonstrate unity with his brothers and sisters in Christ. Especially as a Jew himself. He doesn't want undue burdens to be placed upon them. He doesn't want to make obedience for them harder than it already is because of their own sinful natures. The reality for us is that there is hardly a comparable comparison that would help us to understand the major barriers that existed between Jews and Gentiles at this time. What's happening, this is a slow and painstaking process, this unification of God's people. right? In a sense, it happens in an instant, the death of Christ. But the practical working out of that in church history took, you're, you're probably 25, 30 years out from the resurrection of Jesus at this point. Of course, news traveled a lot slower back then than it does today. We think 25 years How could you not get the message in 25 years? Well, we don't have to ride a horse or get on a ship and take a letter all the way, you know, to the other side of the world. These are not easily settled issues. They require require a lot of patience, self-sacrifice. And so the question for us, to what lengths are you willing to go in order to bring about and maintain peace with others, especially those within the household of faith? So that's the first point of application. The second one regards the Spirit. And here I want to come back to 
the leading of the Spirit. We were talking about the leading of the Spirit earlier, but we, we must not fail when we talk about the Spirit and His leading. We must not fail to maintain that the Spirit leads through His Word. And I want to make the point from Paul himself. Jesus had given Paul his marching orders in Acts chapter 9 when he uh, is converted from Judaism to Christianity. Paul, uh, Jesus tells Paul, you're my instrument, and brother, you're going to suffer. So he has that, but then all throughout his ministry, we see these, uh, these moments shining through of what it was that was leading and guiding Paul. Where was he getting his, not so much inspiration from, but I'll, I'll use the phrase, Paul refers to the Scriptures in his development of his understanding of his calling. What does he say in Acts 13 when the the Jews in Pisidian Antioch uh, are running him out of the city? He says, oh, uh, yeah, that's right. Isaiah 49.6 helps me know that I'm called to go to the Gentiles. Right? Jesus had told me that, but Isaiah 49.6 already told me that. Beyond that, why is Paul so eager to get to Jerusalem? Well, he's got this offering to bring the poverty-stricken saints there. And what does he say at the end of of his speech to the Ephesian elders that we saw last week? He remembers the words of Jesus that he he knew from somewhere. Somewhere he had heard Jesus. Jesus had told him this, or it was a saying of Jesus quoted to him. It's more blessed to give than to receive. But the linchpin, perhaps, is what Paul writes to the Romans regarding his aim to get to Rome and beyond. He tells the Romans in Romans 15, um, he says, uh, it is my ambition to preach Christ where he has not yet been named. So I want to get to Rome and beyond. But why does he want to do that? Why has he made that his ambition? Because of Isaiah 52, 52, 15. Those who have heard of him, who have never been told of him, will see and those who have never heard of him will understand. You see, Paul is driven by the Spirit, but he's not going off on some kind of funny feeling in his stomach that he should just go to Jerusalem for the heck of it. It was both through his, the explicit command of Christ as well as his immersion in the Old Testament Scriptures It was through this that Paul had become convinced that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must get to Rome, and if the Lord willed, he must get beyond Rome. And so we need to see that the Spirit never fails to work through the Word. He certainly never works contrary to it, but he doesn't work apart from it either. So the closing question for us then is this, do you trust God by His Word and Spirit to work together in your life, to lead you, to guide you, to help you finish whatever specific course He has laid out for you as an individual, as a family. And for us as a church family, do we trust God and His Spirit to lead us and to guide us, even when it means doing hard things, even when it means weeping with one another because perhaps someone is up and after a missionary call to the other side of the world 
and we may fear never to see each other again? Are we willing to, to follow where the Lord leads by immersing ourselves in His Word and by listening intently to His leading by His Spirit while we're there? I pray that we do. I think that we are that way, and I hope and pray that we always will be that way as a church by God's grace. Amen.